0: If you're new here this week, or if you've missed a few weeks, or if you've just forgotten everything that <laughs> happened in the last, if you know, you're you kind of like, I can't remember what I had for breakfast, never mind what we were talking about the last few weeks. And um, let, me, let me just catch you up with the book of Hosea. Let me just give you a, a kind of two-minute whistle-stop tour to the book of Hosea. Hosea is a 3,000-year-old poem. That, that's what it is. So it was written 3,000 years ago-ish. Um, It's a poem, it it covers 25 years of um, the ministry of a a person called Hosea who who spoke to the nation of Israel. And it really has one theme. The book of Hosea has one theme which is told in two different ways. And, And the theme is basically the theme of prostitution. So the theme of Hosea is about the Israelites have behaved like a prostitute towards God. They have been an unfaithful wife who, having committed themselves to God, have run off with other lovers. That's the story of Hosea. That's the theme that he's going to keep coming back to over and over again. And what you see in this is that God is hurt and angry at how they've treated him. But despite that, despite his pain, despite his anger, he is committed to pursuing them to winning them back, so that there can be reconciliation the marriage that's healed. So if you're thinking about what the book of Hosea is about, the story it's telling, it's, it's a story that goes a bit like this. It's a story of a marriage between God and his people, where God promises to be their God and they promise to be his people, of unfaithfulness, not on the part of God, but on the part of people, as they don't live up to that promise, they don't live up to being his people, they run around after other gods. The anger and pain of God over that, and then the reconciliation of God with his people. That's the story of Hosea. And it's told over and over and over again in two different ways. And the two different ways it's told are, one is through the oracles, these poems that Hosea spoke and that were then written down for us. So these kind of poetic retellings of that story. That's the first way it's told. The second way it's told is through Hosea's own life. So Hosea actually lives out this example. He marries a prostitute who is then unfaithful to him uh, and then uh, he gets to such a point where in in his pursuit of reconciliation with her, he even has to buy her back. It's graphic poetry. That's what it is. And and this combination of the graphic poetry of Hosea, we're just going to read some in a minute and you'll see kind of how extreme it is, the combination of that graphic poetry and the lived out example, the reason that they're put together is so that we connect with the story, so that we don't just switch off and think this is an old poem, thousands of years old, it's got nothing to do with me, so that we don't think, oh, how I treat God doesn't matter, no one really cares. It's to help us connect with how how do we actually act towards God and how does God actually feel about that? Questions that we often don't want to ask, We don't like to look at ourselves and think, how may I have mistreated God? We prefer to forget about that, to gloss over it, to not think about it. We don't like to think about how God might actually feel about that. And so we're we're meant to feel the weight of how terribly we've treated God, to feel the extent of God's anger, but also to be wowed by God's tender commitment to winning us back. That's what we're meant to do with Hosea. But the question I I want us to look at this week, the question that we're going to be talking about, it is the question of what does it actually look like to cheat on God? What does he actually mean when Hosea talks about that that's what the people have done? What does that actually look like? And so let's read these words. We're going to start reading in Hosea 7, uh, starting from verse 8. Um, so, Hosea 7, starting at verse 8. Uh, and we're going to read a, a relatively big chunk. Uh, and we're going to see what God means when he accuses his people of unfaithfulness. Uh, and, and as I've been saying throughout this, what I want you to do is I want you to try and, as I'm reading this, I want you to sit back. I want you to try and concentrate. I know it's hard because it's kind of different language, not the kind of language we're used to. But what I want you to do is I want you to allow these words to make you feel I want, you to st- I want you to find that your emotions are stirred by them. I don't want you to get overly hung up in the details. I want you just to think about how do these words make you feel. What emotions do they stir in you? So le- let me read Hosea 7, starting at verse 8. Um, on, like I say, on page 905, if you've got one of the Bibles in front of you. Hosea 7, verse 8. Let me, let me read. Ephraim, that's just another word for Israel, for so the nation of Israel. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realise it. His hair is sprinkled with grey, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like the birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. Woe to them because they have strayed from me. Destruction to them because they have rebelled against me. I long to redeem them, but they speak about me falsely. They do not cry out to me from their hearts, but they wail on their beds. They slash themselves, appealing to their gods for grain and new wine, but they turn away from me. I trained them and strengthened their arms, but they plot evil against me. They do not turn to the Most High. They are like a faulty bow. Their leaders will fall by the sword because of their insolent words. For this they will be ridiculed in the land of Egypt. Put the trumpet to your lips. An eagle is over the house of the Lord, because the people have broken my covenant and rebelled against my Lord. Israel cries out to me, Our God, we acknowledge you. Uh, But Israel has rejected what is good. An enemy will pursue him. They set up kings without my consent. They choose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Throw out your calf, idol Samaria. My anger burns against them. How long will they be incapable of purity? They are from Israel. This calf, a metal worker has made it. It is not God. It will be broken in pieces, that calf of Samaria. They sow the wind and reap the whirlwind. The stalk has no head, it will produce no flower. Were it to yield grain, foreigners would swallow it up. Israel is swallowed up. Now she is among the nations, like something no one wants. For they have gone up to Assyria, like a wild donkey, wandering alone. Ephraim has sold herself to lovers. Although they have sold themselves among the nations, I will now gather them together. They will begin to waste away under the impression of the mighty king. Though Ephraim built many altars for sin offerings, these have become altars for sinning. I wrote for them the many things of my law, but they regarded them as something foreign. Though they offer sacrifices as gifts to me, and though they eat the meat, the Lord is not pleased with them. Now he will remember their wickedness and punish their sins. They will return to Egypt. Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces. Judah has fortified many towns, but I will send fire on their cities that will consume their fortresses. Do not rejoice, Israel. Do not be jubilant like the other nations. For you have been unfaithful to your God. You love the wages of a prostitute at every threshing floor. Threshing floors and wine presses will not feed the people. The new wine will fail them. They will not remain in the Lord's land. Ephraim will return to Egypt and eat unclean food in Assyria. They will not pour out wine offerings to the Lord, nor will their sacrifices please him. Such sacrifices will be to them like the bread of mourners. All who eat them will be unclean. This food will be for themselves. It will not come into the temple of the Lord. What will you do on the day of your appointed festivals, on the feast days of the Lord? Even if they escape from destruction, Egypt will gather them and Memphis will bury them. Their treasures of silver will be taken over by briars and thorns will overrun their tents. The days of punishment are coming. The days of reckoning are at hand. Let Israel know this because your sins are so many and your hostility so great. The prophet is considered a fool, the inspired person, a maniac. The prophet, along with my God, is the watchman over Ephraim, yet snares await him on all his paths and hostility in the house of his God. They have sunk deep into corruption, as in the days of Gibeah. God will remember their wickedness and punish them for their sins. Okay, I'm aware that is a lot of words that I've just read. Um, And as I say, I don't expect you to have taken them all in and have digested them all. I just want you to get a flavour, a sense of of how the Israelites have treated God and how God feels about that. Because what we have in that section, in essence, is a detailed description of what Israel's unfaithfulness to God actually looks like. You see, when God describes them as prostitutes, that's not name-calling. It's not like he just randomly wanted to hurl abuse at them. No, God accuses them of adultery because it's an accurate picture of how they have treated him. Because they made promises of exclusivity. They promised that they would be his people and he would be their God. They promised faithfulness to God, but they have not kept their promises. And and I want to suggest that that's shown in two areas of their life. And those two areas are helpfully summarised for us in in one verse. So out of all those words, I want us just to think about chapter 8, verse 4. Let me just read these words to you again. They set up kings without my consent. They chose princes without my approval. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves to their own destruction. Here's what I want to talk about this afternoon. I want to talk about two areas of our life which God calls us to be faithful to him in but where we often are not. I want us to think about what unfaithfulness in those two areas of our life might look like. And the two areas are this, kings and idols. So if, you, if you're trying to remember what on earth did we talk about on that random Sunday afternoon in, in whatever month it is, May, then, then I want you to remember this, kings, idols. What does it look like to be unfaithful to God in those two areas. Now, it's at this moment that I wish that I'd paid any attention to the coronation because I would have loads of really good examples uh, of what this might look like. But I didn't, and so I don't. I've got no good examples. and So I'm going to go back to basics when I'm talking about this and just try and start with what is a king? Now, what do we mean when we talk about a king? The the king uh, that Hosea was talking about here uh, is not a king like we have. Uh, in their day the king was the ruler of the land he was the one who sets the laws which you then needed to live by he determined the laws that governed your life he was also the person who represented you uh, and more than that the king was the one who was supposed to protect you and defend you so when Israel first said that they wanted a king they wanted someone to rule over them they, they said they wanted them for two reasons they wanted someone to rule over them and they wanted someone to defend them from their enemies that's what they wanted their king to do they wanted someone to rule over them and someone to protect them and so they asked for a king now, now it's interesting because Israel was never supposed to have a king God was supposed to be their king. That was the agreement that they'd made all those years ago with Moses and Sinai and the Ten Commandments and all that stuff. That was the agreement they made. God will be their king. They will be his people. They weren't supposed to have a king. But they asked for a king and God graciously gave them one. He warned them against it. He said, having a king is not going to be a great idea. They're going to rule over you. They're going to exploit you. They're going to take your money. They, they won't be good for you. They warned against it. But, despite the warning, the people said, we want a king, and so God allowed them to have a king. But, the king that God allowed them to have was always supposed to be a sub-regent. You know, an under-king to God himself. God was the true king, the king above all others, and the kings ruled under him. He was only to rule the people under God. And so God would remain their ultimate king. That was how the nation of Israel was supposed to function. But what you see in that verse I just read for you, 8 verse 4, is Israel stopped doing that. That wasn't how they related to their kings. They didn't have kings that ruled them under God. No, they started, to take the words of this, setting up kings without God's consent. Not kings who would rule under God, but kings who would rule instead of God. These are no longer the good kings that God called them to have, who would lead them to follow and love God. But these are kings who seek to rule over the people without any reference to God. More than that, the people of Israel have actually subjected themselves to other nations, to their kings. They'd gone to Assyria and Egypt. We see that in chapter 7, verse 11, uh, that Israel is described like this dove who call out to Egypt and to Assyria. In chapter 8, In verse 9, we're told they've gone up to Assyria. And and that's called the equivalent of selling themselves to other lovers. You see, their prostitution looks like setting up kings over them who do not follow God. And it looks like running to Assyria and Egypt rather than to God. It was the king who was supposed to rule. And it was the king who was supposed to bring security to the people to establish peace. But rather than allowing God to rule... They'd put other people in God's place to rule over them. Rather than looking to God for their security, they'd run to the superpowers of the day and look to them for their security. And of course, the ridiculous thing is, they're running to Assyria and Egypt for their security. When actually, Assyria and Egypt are the main threat. In just a few decades, Assyria are going to invade and effectively destroy Israel. The the nation of Israel will never exist again in the same way as it did at this point after those years. So they're running to the very people who are actually, they need protecting from for their protection. So here's the question that we always want to ask when we're looking at the Bible, and that is, what would it look like for me, what would it look like for you, to treat God like that? Where might you be in danger of setting up other kings in your life, not under God, but instead of God. Where are we in danger of cheating on the God who we say we love? Well, one of the ways is we set up rival kings in our lives. If, if kings are at its most, their most basic level, the things that rule over our lives, then the question I guess you've got to ask, and I've got to ask myself is, what rules over my life? What sets the direction of my life? What sets the laws of my life? What dictates the the boundaries of my life? What is it that I obey? Because there's plenty of rival kings out there. For some of us, the, the kings that we follow, the kings that we allow to rule over our life, is nothing more complicated than the crowds. It's popular opinion which we follow. We can't cope with the thought of being marginalised or ridiculed by the masses. And so we simply follow where society leads. Our morality is governed by popular opinion. Our priorities are determined by what everyone else thinks. That's it. That's, that's the king we've set up in our life. That's what sets the rules of our life. Nothing more than popular opinion, than, than the wisdom of the crowd. For others, it, it won't be that. You might be one of those people who loves being an outsider, who, who loves being kind of contrary. But there's plenty of other rival kings we might have. But for others of us, it will be money. Every decision we make is driven by our bank account. Should I work on this day or not work on this day is driven by our bank account. Should I lie on this form or should I not lie on this form is driven by our bank account. What should I spend my time doing is driven by our bank account. That is the king of our life that sets the laws and direction of the life we live. But for some of you, it it might not be money, it might not be a crowd, but it, it might just be a specific individual person. It might be your children. Every decision you make is dictated by what your child wants or by how they will react. How you spend your time, your money, the things you consider to be good and bad, they're all driven by your children. They're the kings of your life that set the direction of your life. that determine the things you do and the things you don't do. I mean, maybe it's not children. Maybe it's a friend whose opinion you allow to drive your life. Maybe it's a husband or a wife or boyfriend or girlfriend. They call the shock they determine the direction of your life. It could even be a church leader. You know That, that could be the person that you've allowed to become king in your life. Maybe, maybe the king you've set up is, is actually yourself. I, I'm the king of my life. I decide the direction of my life. I decide what is right and wrong and no one else is going to tell me what to do. See, there's no shortage of rival kings out there. Kings that we look to and we say, this is what's going to rule over me. This is what's going to drive my life. Every decision I make is going to be driven by these things. Or to take the other test. Maybe it's not what you're allowed to rule over you. Maybe it's where you go for security. Where, Where do you look for your security? I mean, it's a similar list, isn't it? You know, money, more money will protect us from the sadness, disappointment, failure, from all the things that we fear in our life. A person, my friends, my wife, my parents, my children, they're going to protect me from loneliness, from stress, from disappointment, from failure, from all those things that we fear most. Ourselves, I'm going to be so capable that I'm going to protect myself from all the things that I fear most. Here's a question that you, I can't answer it for you. I, I struggle sometimes to answer it for myself. Like, like, who is king in your life? Who sets the rules? What, who do you run to for your security? Now, now, I just want you to notice that the issue isn't simply having these things as kings. Because it's not necessarily a problem to listen to and obey the crowd or other people or even ourselves. It's not wrong to have leaders that we follow. It's not wrong to allow money to drive the decisions we make. The problem is, to take chapter 8 verse 4, the problem is when we set those things up without God's consent. The issue is when these things do not rule under God, but instead of God. The crowd and money and people and ourselves should only determine the laws of our life, the things that we obey, the places we look to for security, to the extent that they can do that under God's rule. Let me just try and make sure we've got this. We follow the crowd until they lead us away from God. And at that point, their kingship ends. You can follow and consider financial impacts up to the point where those impact your relationship with and obedience to God. And there, money's kingship has to end. We allow people to drive our lives up to the point that it drives us away from God. And when that happens, their kingship has to end. We find security in our abilities up until the point that it stops us relying on God. And at that point, our own kingship has to end. You want to know what this spiritual prostitution that's been dominating the book of Hosea for the last five weeks and is going to dominate for the next three weeks? You want to know what it looks like? It looks like rival kings rather than under kings. That's what it looks like. That's, that's the first thing it looks like. Here's, here's the second. The second half of the verse. With their silver and gold, they make idols for themselves. The Israelites' unfaithfulness to God, it looks like two things. It looks like replacing God as their king, but it also looks like replacing God as their God. It looks political and religious. It's about the things we obey and it's about the things we worship. If a king is the thing which rules over you, which establishes the laws which govern your life and which you look to for security, then an idol is the thing that you worship. And, and just to kind of boil it down, to worship something is to give something worth. It's to adore or revere something. And, and human beings, we're, we're created to worship. I mean, more specifically, we were created to worship God. God is our creator and his creation was made to communicate his worth. The billions of stars in the sky are designed to communicate something of God's power. The intricacies of a flower are designed to communicate something of God's creativity. The way God deals with people is designed to communicate something of his love. All of creation is designed to communicate something of the worth of God, to worship him. The problem is that like the adulterous wife in Hosea, we have had our head turned. We've become infatuated by created things rather than the creator. Rather than declaring the worth of the God who made us, who loves us and who died for us, we have started to declare the worth of the things that he made. It's like someone in an art gallery, praising a painting whilst pretending that the painter didn't exist. We worship things God created rather than allowing those things to prompt us to worship God himself. When Hosea talks about spiritual prostitution, this is what it looks like. It looks like idolatry. It looks like worshipping something other than God. So, So here's the second question I want you to ask yourself that I also can't answer for you. The second diagnostic of where your heart is what do you worship instead of God's? And again, there are no shortage of candidates. Sports teams, musicians, celebrities, friends, our own intellects, other gods, computer games. What, what are those things that you adore? What are those things that you can't stop talking about? Who's worth you can't stop communicating? The things which dominate your thoughts and your time. Because human beings love to worship things. I'm often struck by how with human beings, just liking something is never quite enough. We, like, we can't be like, oh no, I just like that. We have to love it. We have to be obsessed by it. We long to be consumed by something, captivated by something's beauty or power or intricacy. And the reason we love to worship things is because we were created to do just that. We were created to worship something. It's hardwired into us, part of what it means to be human. But that need to worship can only really be satisfied by God. Anything else is just another created thing. To take the words of chapter 8 verse 6, a metal worker has made it. It is not God's. It's that simple. It was made by something. It's not God's. And just like with the kings, the issue is not enjoying certain things. It's not about seeing the worth of those things. It's not even about talking about the worth of those things. It's fine to be blown away by the scale of creation, to be awed by a particular sports team, to be enthused by a game or a person. These are all fine. The issue is when we do those things without reference to God. Let me put it as simply as I can. A statue of a calf is not a problem until you claim it's God. Similarly, music, theatre, celebrity, intellect, nature, they're not problems until you relate to them as if they are God. They are things to be enjoyed as gifts from God, to help us enjoy God, to help us be even more aware of the worth of the one who created all of these things. So, I guess as we we wrap it up, this is the question I want you to think about. If you've kind of zoned out for all this, this is what I want you to kind of do with all of this. I want us to examine ourselves and try and be as honest with ourselves and ask ourselves the question, who is my king? Like, who do I follow? What do I follow? Where do I go to for my security? Who do I worship? Who do I adore? Whose worth do I spend my life communicating To be one of God's people means to have him as your king, the king to which everyone and everything else is at most an under king, and then to worship him and enjoy the things he made. That's that's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to know God. That's what it means to be part of his family. If you're someone here today who's not a Christian, that's what we invite you to do. It's not a small decision we're inviting you to make. It's not like, oh yeah, I could probably do that. No, it's, a, it's a big decision. Who, are you going to let God be the king in your life, set the rules and direction of your life? Are you going to worship him, forsaking all others, till death do you part? If you're, if you're not a Christian, we'd love you to make that decision for the first time. If you are a Christian, we, we want to repent of the times where we don't do that. None of us do that perfectly. None of us can say we've always related to God as our king we've never set up a rival king next to him. None of us can say our life is consumed with worship for him, not worship for something else. I was thinking this week about why is it that we have our head turned so easily? Why is it that things that are so obviously inferior to God can set themselves up as rivals to him? And I wonder how much of it is just down to the perfectly simple thing that we can follow other kings because we can see them and they feel more real to us. A God in heaven is too easy for us to forget, too easy for us to ignore. Assyria, they're not easy for the Israelites to ignore. Neither is Egypt. For us, money or children, they're not easy things to ignore. They feel so much more real and so much more powerful. The reason we worship other things is because we can look and see their worth, but we can't see God. And so, in the clearest act of communication imaginable, God decided to solve that problem. God became a human being who walked on this earth. Finally, you could see this king. And when he spoke, you could feel his authority. And when he commanded storms and spirits and even the dead, they obeyed him. And when he said to people, follow me, people left everything and followed him. Finally, you could see this king. Finally, you could see the God you worshipped. You could see his compassion as he healed the sick. You could see his graciousness as he welcomed the outsiders. You could see his love as he wept for his friends and even as he wept for his enemies. We wanted a king we could see. We wanted to worship something we could see. And so God in his great kindness gave us just that. He gave us a king we can see. He gave us a God we can see and worship but that was a king like no one expected. This king was so much better than we imagined. This was not a king who came to be served, but to serve. This was not a king who merely demanded our obedience, but a king who won it. This was not a king who sent us to fight for him, but who would fight for us. This is not a king who held on to his riches, but who gave them up for us. Ultimately, this was the king whose rule would always be good, who would always be selfless, who would ultimately go to the cross for his people. He would lay down his life to defeat our enemies. He would suffer torture and death and judgment to protect us. When God showed us our true king, it was the king that we have spent our lives longing for. So now on the cross, we finally see our king. We finally see a God we can worship. You see, what is the solution to our... Spiritual prostitution for our spiritual adultery. Well, if there's one thing Hosea tells us again and again, the solution to it is to fall in love with our husband again. What's the solution to us cheating on God with other kings and other idols? It's to gaze afresh at the king and God that we see on the cross. As that happens, all other kings, all other idols, they look pathetic in comparison and so uh, as we close that's what I want us to do I want us to turn our eyes away from those kings that have set themselves up as rivals to God in our lives away from those things we worship instead of God and to fix our eyes afresh on the king who went to the cross for us and allow that to drive us to the worship that we so easily give to others but it should be reserved exclusively for him. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to sing a few songs, and I'm hoping that as we sing those songs, we will find our gaze turned afresh. We will find ourselves falling in love again with the God who is our King and the one that we worship. Let me pray.